0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: Welcome, everyone. Well, we know that K-12 education and science education is a critical public topic when you can fill a hall and in short amount of time have only standing room since probably students won't arrive for another 10 minutes for the... (laughs) My name is John Hennessy and it's really a delight to be here at this seminar which really kicks off our K-12 initiative. But what I'd like to do is put this wonderful lecture today in a little bit of context both of what's going on here at Stanford and what's going on in the United States before we turn to our distinguished lecturer who I know will have lots to say on the topic of science education. One of the things that's made Stanford unique among universities is its willingness to think about how its research can help shape the world and improve the world. That, of course, goes back to the founding vision that the Stanfords had for this university. And it's something that we've cultivated over time. And today, we remain committed to that vision of trying to help through our research and teaching to ensure that the world is better for future generations. Last year, I toured the United States talking to alumni groups around the country about the future of our university and what sorts of things we would be focusing on. And I heard in virtually every city I visited that we as a university had to make a more significant commitment to the crisis in K-12 education in this country. Of course, we already had a top-rated education school. We were already doing a lot. But I think our alumni and the many people I met with convinced me that we had to find a way to make a larger contribution to a problem which was certainly not shrinking in importance and impact. And nowhere is that challenge more acute than in areas of teaching of science and mathematics. Science is at the heart of so much of what we do now. We need a public which not only understands the importance of science, understands what's happening, and can be therefore informed citizens as we shape policies around this country. Similarly, I think we all realize that unless the United States can continue to produce significant numbers of young people who will go into science and engineering, we as a country will not be able to maintain the incredible innovative lead that we've had that's delivered so many benefits to our citizens as well as a thriving economy. Of course, those of you that have seen the National Academy report rising above the coming storm, you know this is their core theme, maintaining that innovative edge. And they say quite correctly, I believe, that unless we can educate our students well in K-12 in science and and mathematics, we cannot fix the problem. Stanford University has a strong stake in improving that science and mathematics teaching, not only for our own students, but also for the positive impact we can have on the world. Preparing teachers, understanding the role of pedagogy in teaching of science and math are absolutely crucial. So in thinking about how we would put this initiative together, the first thing I needed to do was to understand that our deans would really support it. Through the wonderful leadership of Deborah Stipek here in the education school and the support of deans across campus, we concluded that we could bring together a larger group of faculty across the university to begin to think about this. And it was quite natural then to think about focusing on science and mathematics as a key area where we could make a contribution. We were fortunate to recruit two stellar faculty to help lead this initiative. I'm talking of course of my colleagues, Helen Quinn, professor of physics at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center and Kenji Hakuda, professor of education here at the School of Education. They're sitting right up here in the front row and I think they have put themselves on the line We all owe them a big round of applause. (laughs) When we were talking about doing this, I used a a little tale which I often use. I, I said, your role is to be committed to this initiative and the way you understand that you're committed is to think about a breakfast of bacon and eggs and realize that the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. (laughs) You're committed, as are all our faculty and deans across the university. We have to make a big difference here. I think many of you are familiar with the national studies and how we're doing. In the NAEP exam, less than 25% of our students achieve proficiency at 12th grade in mathematics and less than 18% in science. On international scales, we rank either in the bottom one-third or the bottom one-half in math and science exams competitively. And yet we can do it. One of the most amazing statistics I saw recently was if you look at the students who have taken advanced placement science courses in our high schools, they compete at the very top level around the world. So we have the ability to be successful here. What we need to do is to put together the resources and the commitment as a country to be successful. And Stanford needs to be an important part of that. In this context, you'll hear today from my distinguished colleague and predecessor, Professor Emeritus Don Kennedy. And I'm so pleased because of the importance of science education, a topic that Don has been committed to for many, many years. That he agreed to be our inaugural lecturer in this wonderful event. So, at this point, I'd like to turn the podium over to Deborah Stipek, our Dean of the School of Education, who knows probably far better than I do what's really at stake in this. Deborah.
0: John, as you're walking out, I would just like to thank you. I do re- really do not know very many presidents of universities, especially like Stanford, that would commit and focus attention on K-12 education. So thank you for your leadership. Well first, before I introduce our distinguished speaker, I really want to thank all of you for coming today. This is really testimony, I think, to the level of investment and interest in science education that Stanford has and I think bodes well for our ability to come together as a community and really work on the important issues that Don Kennedy is going to help us understand. The, and I should also tell you that this is part of a Cubberley lecture series which is named after the School of Education's first Dean, Elward Cubberley. He was also a major benefactor of the school. The series has been in place since Coverley's original endowment in 1933 for the School of Education building. It was established to to encourage discussion about current issues in in education, and certainly science education I think satisfies this requirement very nicely, so I'm quite sure that, that Mr. Coverley would approve. We're incredibly fortunate to have Don Kennedy as our speaker this afternoon especially on this very special occasion of kicking off the Stanford K-12 initiative. As I'm sure you all know, uh, Don Kennedy was Stanford's president from 1980 to 1992, and I think, I assume that college presidents are like national American presidents, that once a president, always a president, so we should probably refer to him as President Kennedy. He has had many other roles in addition to being president at at Stanford, including being the director of the program in human biology and chair of the biology department. His research interests and and scholarship span many disciplines. He is truly a renaissance man. And just to name a few, (coughs) environmental problems such as land use and climate change, the ivory bill woodpecker in Arkansas, herbicide weed management in Asian rice fields, and, of course, math and science education and achievement. He has, in case you're wondering, experienced life outside of Stanford, briefly. Uh, For example, he served as the commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in Washington, D.C., from 1977 to 1979. And since 2000, Don has been editor-in-chief of science, and most of you know I think that science is the journal of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, um, perhaps the most important voice in the scientific community, and a central player in shaping science policy, well, under some administrations maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure about the present one, but that we'll put that aside. The only questionable entry in an otherwise stellar and very distinguished career, involves a brief stint at that school on the East Coast that begins with an H, where Don received his bachelor's and doctoral degrees in biology. Um, but happily, since 1960, he's been associated with, in some capacity, with Stanford. So I'd say that we got the better end of the deal. We're really fortunate to have such a an accomplished scientist and national leader, to help us think through the complex issues related to the teaching of science. It's my great pleasure to introduce President Don Kennedy.
2: That was very nice. (laughs) Well I'm delighted to be in the School of Education. I think the last time I had the lecture in this room it was squeezed down. D- does anybody else remember the old form of Coverley? It was kind of like a Pullman kitchen only it was a Pullman <laughs> lecture room and you had to feel as though you were shouting to reach the back row. I'm glad to be here because Deborah is the most recent of a string of wonderful deans with whom I've worked and and faculty members with whom I've worked uh, over the years. And uh, in this talk, I'm going to emphasize science education, not only because it's been a long interest of mine, but also because I think what is happening in this area captures a great deal of what is at play as we try to evaluate what our K-12 system should be accomplishing the ways in which its deficiencies are disappointing, American parents and the public, and what can be done to make it better. Science education is a big deal all by itself because science is so near the center of many of our most promising and pressing policy challenges. Consider, for example, the need to reach decisions about new technologies and, and healthcare, The prospective use of stem cell uh, technology is one example or the need to make difficult scientific and economic decisions about how to mitigate or adapt to climate change. In a broader and less specific sense, however, how we teach science can bring some of the larger problems of our educational system into sharper focus, especially as it calls out some major questions about how we attract and retain teachers. I want to start with one of the most difficult questions to ask about science education. It's a special version of a generic query about all of education, namely, what is it for? In the sciences, is it to produce a thin layer of outstandingly brilliant innovators? and thinkers who will become leaders in establishing a new paradigm or become explorers of Vannevar Bush's endless frontier? Or is it instead a way to produce a level of scientific literacy in the general population that can help our society apply better judgments to policy issues in which science and technology play crucial roles? I like both. So I prefer not to express a preference, and I'm going to argue that what we really need are two different, uh, what we really don't need are two different curricula and teachers to fulfill each of those obligations. I disagree with that view because I think a good system should be successful at both. I think teaching in college, college to freshman often uh, succeeds at both. And I don't see why it can't be the same in secondary and elementary education as well. So if a good system can be successful at both, that leads to the next question. Do we have one? So I'm going to begin with uh, what's wrong. Many Americans, and and many experts, I, I think, believe that the problem is in organization, including the way systems are put together and managed, the role and preparation of principals and superintendents, the role of teachers' unions, the role of the publishing industry, the role of approval bodies and boards that determine frameworks and curriculum, there's little doubt in my mind that the institutional infrastructure of schools could use some improvement. But I think the heart of the problem is a little different. I want to argue that most of our objections to education in America at this level would disappear if there were a sense among parents and observers that we were getting better teachers. I first began to move toward that conclusion at my first Stanford commencement in 1981, and I will spend a moment telling about that experience. There had been a view that contemporary undergraduates, I mean contemporary in that time, were careerist, self-interested, and not devoted to the public welfare. There was a piece in People magazine, surely the the lowest common denominator of conventional wisdom, uh, that 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 is exactly what these kids that they had never talked to or or interviewed carefully were like. I got kind of mad and in my farewell to the graduates in that first year, I talked about service and I mentioned the needs of the K-12 system for people who were devoted to that kind of service. The reaction convinced me that maybe if we could change the climate, improve the incentives to work at that level for prospective teachers, we could get somewhere. And I think we made some progress over the next few years. We established the Haas Center, where many students, undergraduates at Stanford, learned about teaching through the practice of tutoring. I mean, tutoring is a kind of teaching, after all, and you can learn a lot about how to teach by doing it. And through Stanford and the Schools, a program that Mike Atkin, who is here, and I started uh, in uh, the year after that uh, uh, commencement, and through the growth of the STEP initiative uh, as well. uh, All all those things, I think, have, have turned out Uh, to have some important consequences. Perhaps not as much as in our hopeful uh, mood at the time we we expected, but still progress. So I think persuading smart people and committed people to become teachers at the K-12 level is important. But we need to recognize that there are some particular problems in recruiting secondary school teachers in the sciences where some serious subject matter preparation has to accompany hard work in developing pedagogical skills. And that's a a hard road to expect people to follow as they prepare to become teachers. There's a rather sad old joke that asks what is the first name of the average high school physics teacher in Texas? And the answer is Coach. That tells you a little story about whether enough people who have that particular set of skills and that particular service inclination are prepared to go uh, and teach physics in high school. Never mind Texas, it could be told uh, about a lot of places. I think an important piece of this problem, by the way, is being attacked successfully and productively by Teach for America. 25 years ago, a bright Stanford undergraduate could sit down at a dinner table in a living center with a group of others who are respectively headed for law, business, or medicine, and only with great reluctance undertake the announcement that he was headed for on education that would equip him to teach high school English or chemistry. TEACH 4 has played a huge role, I think, in changing that, and I think the conversations that you would hear around a Stanford Living Center dinner table today would be different. I think there is more respect for service in general, but also more respect for teaching as a career and for the needs of young people to have good teachers. Because my personal experience with graduates of the Teach for America program has been so positive and because I'm encouraged by the more recent data on recruitment and retention, uh, that I, I think it ought to be supported by uh, people in schools of education and other experts and and that uh, the role that it is encouraging uh, bright undergraduate students to take uh, will will continue uh, to be incre- increasingly popular uh, with them. It's one of the real hopes I think for comprehensive uh, systemic improvement. Now I want to turn to a different kind of problem, namely the the struggle to improve subject matter. I think what's also wrong with K-12 is that there are many players in the game with radically different views about what the curriculum should contain, and that therefore the reform effort, and certainly there is lots of appetite for reform, and no shortage of reformers. But that reform effort has to drag itself through a battlefield, uh, a battlefield that sometimes uh, uh, does damage to it. Here, I want to present you with a few uh, examples. First, the battle over curricular design and curricular reform. The National Academies of Science brought forth, uh, uh, under Rich Klausner's chairmanship, Uh, A set of uh, national science education standards, they were published uh, uh, shortly before I became chair of of the advisory committee to the Academy's Center for Science, Mathematics, Engineering and Technology, uh, the the, uh, uh, science uh, unit with the unattractive uh, uh, acronym SMET. Something needs to be done about the order of that to, to correct it. In, in any case, uh, Smet was, was to become concerned with uh, whether uh, the national science uh, uh, standards uh, would be incorporated in the development of some state frameworks. That's the way things of that kind happen. Uh, In California, I must observe, conservative commentators who wish not to see the standards adopted uh, managed to produce for a framework hearing in Sacramento that I had the misfortune of attending, uh, Glenn Seaborg, a Nobel laureate from the University of California, hugely distinguished, great history. But at the time he was produced to testify at this, he was what can only be described as an infirm nonagenarian, and he was plainly uh, introduced to support an effort of some uh, conservative uh, spokespersons to block a certain uh, implementation of these standards into the state framework. Seaborg's testimony consisted of reading from the introduction to a 20-year-old report from a committee he had chaired. Uh, it uh, did not make uh, uh, an impressive Uh, appearance. Uh, They heard nothing from him about science. Uh, It was plain that he had been propped up to be a a poster for the status quo. So the business of getting a set of national standards, or even not, even getting a group of local standards, which had been generated with the help of a state-selected scientific uh, community, uh, turned out to be Uh, very difficult. Second example. I don't suppose many of you noticed, but at about the same time that this testimony was going on in Sacramento, some demonstrations were occurring outside the Palo Alto School Board office here in town. Uh, Who were the demonstrators? I hear you cry. well, surprised. some of them were fairly senior professors in the mathematics department at Stanford University. Uh, they feared that efforts to improve the teaching of introductory math at the college level by some leading mathematicians like Harvard's Deborah, Deborah hughes hallett Stanford's Brad Osgood, University of Michigan's High Bass, h- hardly a group of reactionaries uh, would water down the kind of math they thought was the right kind if it were to be applied in grades K-12. I want to make a point here that I'm not nearly smart enough to know what is right about any of these curricular issues. My only point is that it is very hard to reach any kind of agreement over terrain that is as contested as this particular terrain. Don't enter the lists in curricular reform unless you're prepared to have a difficult time with it. Another example, of course, uh, and you knew this was coming, right, has to do with the teaching of evolution in biology. I will only briefly state the character of the problem. It is not a conflict between religion and biology. Catholic schools do fine with evolution and so do many other schools with religious affiliations. The push to teach some form of creationism or intelligent design comes from a particular kind of fundamentalist Christian belief. That view of the world is not limited to evolutionary biology. It extends to other alternative forms of how we conduct science education. It holds, for example, the view that the physical Earth is the result of a single, often recent, creation event. Thereby, it ignores all of the data from isotope ratios that have established the timetable for the evolution of more than 4 billion years of Earth history. I've long thought that this challenge goes to the very heart of what we're trying to accomplish in science teaching and how we should go about it. When the National Academy of Sciences decided it had to play a role in this important issue for science and for education, it appointed a committee that I co-chaired that took on the education issues. I brought one with me just to brandish. I mean, you can't see it, doesn't matter. It's it's kind of a thin thing, but I think it's pretty well done and effectively published. I thought it was important to use the evolution issue as an entry point into the broader problem of how we teach science. The title of the book we eventually produced is Teaching About Evolution and the Nature of Science because I think it's important to make it clear that the debate with respect to evolution can be enlarged to encompass the problem of how we most effectively teach other kinds of science as well. Well, when we had finished uh, the the book, uh, we were quite proud of it. The Academy sent about 40,000 copies around to high schools uh, around the country. They were distributed with the support of a number of state governments, with one notable exception. Uh, The governor of Alabama ordered his superintendent of public instruction not to send it out. But this is not the end of the story uh, because there's a wonderful upset here. It's kind of an O. Henry ending. To my delight, something called the Alabama Academy of Sciences. Did you? Who knew? (laughs) They got... 800, they bought them, and shipped them into Alabama, and they distributed them to every high school biology teacher in the state of Alabama. It was one of the most wonderful things I had heard of at the time. We all felt so good about our effort that uh, the, the, the Academy wanted to do a press conference about it. And I found myself seated next to a wonderful uh, high school science teacher from Seattle and and, uh, who was on our committee, and Maxine Singer, who was also on on our committee. And uh, we told him all the wonderful things that we have done about teaching teachers how to teach evolution and how to teach science. Pretty soon, a reporter raised his hand to remind me that half the American people did not believe that human beings had evolved from other forms. Yeah, Okay. Another one quickly added that half of all Americans believe in astrology. All I could think of at the time was to pray that it was the same half. And (laughs) the press conference sort of limped to a halt after that. here's Here's the core problem. What the creationist alternative does to students is to intercept and deaden curiosity along with the desire to discover various truths for themselves. If relationships or correlations can simply be allocated to the cleverness of a designer, there's very little incentive to think up an experiment or undertake an analysis. What I want from Stanford students when they arrive from high school is a questioning mind and an appetite for discovering things. If in the creationist classroom they came from, they're left with a designer and not much less, not much else to explain, uh, so that so that there can be kind of uh, an, an adventure uh, on the student's part in constructing his or her own explanation. Uh, th- that's that's a sad outcome. That's why I have agreed. Uh, this is not two or three months ago uh, to be an expert witness for the defense in a trial in which the University of California Regents are being sued by a group of Christian schools, uh, students, and uh, their their parents. This is an interesting case. The, the lawyer for Munger-Tolls in L.A. who is doing this turns out to be uh, a former human biology student of mine. <laughs> and. Uh, that's how he found me, I guess. I don't think he had read the book. Uh, and, and and the other attorney, the younger associate, the litigator, is, uh, is uh, a Stanford Law School classmate of my stepdaughter. So it's, it, we're having, having good fun, uh, although it, <laughs> it may not continue to be good fun. Uh, here's the case. The plaintiffs allege that the defendants have, by refusing to count biology courses in which creationist textbooks are used to fulfill the laboratory requirement that's one of five or six general secondary school requirements that you have to meet in order to gain gain admission to the University of California uh, system. Uh, They they feel deprived. there, there's an, you know, equal, equal represent- big argument about, about equal representation and so forth that, that the lawyers can handle. My task, <laughs> my task is to uh, go over some interesting books. Uh, the lawyers sent me a bunch. Uh, and on my desk in Encino Hall, I've placed on my table prominently enough, to draw confused and skeptical glances from my visiting colleagues, two books. One is entitled, Biology, God's Living Creation, and the other is entitled, Biology for Christian Schools. Now, these books are thick. They're full of illustrations, mostly accurate. I mean, they do the taxonomy, and they do the morphology reasonably well. The vocabulary is extensive and, as far as I can tell, uh, accurate. In my view, what the creationist alternative does is to defeat in these students any desire to develop explanations for themselves, uh, the kinds of explanations that would lead them to discover other important uh, relationships. In exploring these texts, I found few instances in which students are being introduced to science as a process. That is, the way scientists work, uh, how they do experiments, the way in which they analyze and interpret the results of investigations. So they emerge and enter college, and at the college level, much of the instruction they will receive will count on them to have had some exposure to how science is carried out, and to the kinds of critical thinking that requires scientists to challenge their own hypotheses. The curriculum represented by these books fails to accomplish that, even with respect to the hypotheses that dominate them, namely that biological complexity and organic diversity are the result of special creation. Critical thinking is absent in the defense of of those propositions. A thoughtful approach, by the way, that might have encouraged students to consider major possible exceptions to evolutionary theory, seek, seek your own exceptions. Create some problems uh, for, the, for the evolutionists on the basis of their own ideas about how the system works. There's none of that, uh, instead the counterarguments consist of, of ridicule in uh, numbers of cases or inappropriately drawn metaphors. In one book, there's a picture of the Transamerica Pyramid. And a student is asked to consider how, what an amazing thing it would be. This is an analog to uh, evolution by mutation. If uh, from great height, all of the individual pieces of the Transamerica Pyramid were dropped, and if they assembled m- miraculously to form it. Uh, the student is expect, expected to doubt that. Well, I would. I mean, wouldn't you? It's, it's, uh, it's so uh, strangely inappropriate and so clearly used as, as, uh, as uh, uh, a metaphor that, that one really wonders. So what about us, us who all know better Are we permitted some sense of superiority about the job we're doing for science students ourselves in non-Christian or public or other kinds of secondary schools? I I wish I were surer about that than I am. Our books are heavy, all right, with vocabulary, facts, and pictures. They are so heavy that they make the average student's backpack an invitation to an orthopedically challenged later life. The best of these books do, to be sure, a good job of teaching about evolution and about the evolution of the Earth, too, but many of them communicate little of the process of science. How we formulate hypotheses, how we design experiments to test them, how we challenge ourselves, as we must, about the emerging conclusion. Well, there have been some interesting experiments tried. My colleague, Craig Heller, uh, who's here, uh, and and some of my former colleagues in Stanford's program in human biology, we all taught together for various periods of time, they did a fascinating exercise long after I'd left. They took some of the essence of the human biology core, which I think was a very interesting and and productive curricular experiment. Still alive, still doing well. They took uh, some of that curriculum with support from the National Science Foundation and modified it to uh, uh, a 20 unit curriculum that would be suitable for the middle school grades. Middle school, boy does, the average middle school need a boost in terms of science teaching. I mean, imagine getting serious student attention in the endocrine maelstrom of middle school. (laughs) They, they They got something good together. It was a substantial critical success. The reviewers at NSF loved it. Soon, an innovative publisher was found. Guess what? That publisher got bought out by another who had little interest in a new approach that wouldn't sell as many books as they wanted uh, it to sell. So Craig and, uh, a- and his colleagues uh, uh, resolutely found another candidate, uh, which looked perfect and produced the first 10 of the 20 units. Merger mania struck again. And it was dissolved by uh, a bunch of new owners who had so little interest that the remaining units were never published. Can you find the 10 that already were? Uh, Not unless you know their bibliographic numbers. You can't find them by titles. You can't find them by authors. Uh, A wonderful experiment, uh, long gone, uh, because it didn't fit uh, well in the hands of the publishing industry short but encouraging run uh, terminated before its times. Well, that well may be part of the heart of our problem. My last uh, illustration has to do with the abundance of interesting, uh, often successful local models, schools, curricula, whatever. In other areas, foundations and other funders frequently are very good at starting one-off experiments in the K-12 sector on the expectation that if something can be shown to work in this way, the successes are likely to be adopted elsewhere. Think again. A study by Mary Bud Rowe found that of major innovative projects sponsored that is funded by the National Science Foundation, only a few were ever implemented beyond the locus of primary innovation. Thus, it is that expectation leads to disappointment nowhere more frequently than with local models of educational change. In the education space, there is a strange barrier to the infectivity of good ideas and models. As one observer of the educational scene observed, the problem isn't that schools don't change. They change promiscuously, They just don't get better." That's not exactly an inspiring quotation to end on, so I'm not going to end on it. Uh, I actually don't feel that hopeless about the future, and one reason for that uh, emerges from some history. It is an old problem with the history. In 1987, Russ Edgerton of AAHE and uh, David Hamburg, then uh, president of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, convened a group of us at Spring Hill in Minnesota to talk about higher education leaders could take more responsibility for K-12 education following a recommendation from the Carnegie Forum on Education and the Economy. We thought that teacher preparation and improvement was absolutely vital and that hand-wringing about the quality of schools is just another form of blaming the victim. Uh, our idea was to get to work and see if we can do better about inspiring and recruiting prospective teachers. We hoped for a certification of master or lead teachers and we drew encouragement from the formation of a national professional standards board and from what was going on in progressive states, inventive states like North Carolina where Jim Hunt's leadership from the governor's mansion was having a lot of a lot of good results. Much earlier than this, federal incentives like those in the 50s and early 60s brought me and a lot of others out to high schools to uh, experiment with the hard work the teacher really actually have to do. Boy, was that uh, was that a revelation! Uh, and and it and it brought high school teachers to summer seminars, uh, including those here at Stanford uh, that several of us in biology used to teach in. Uh, Paul Dehart heard was the impresario, and he would bring these uh, these uh, uh, wonderful high school teachers. Uh, I I sometimes decided I could refuse Paul on uh, giving a seminar for these. Uh, R- remarkable teachers m- many of them young women my graduate students would not let me refuse uh, they enjoyed having them come in and participate in a in a seminar it was it was actually a great time this was the post sputnik surge of trying to create something different what it what it created not, not only was some incentive for uh, getting uh, new teachers Uh, It it produced a sense of professional continuity between those who profess science in universities, those who profess it in research laboratories, and those who teach it in high schools. We we brought the community closer together in those days than I think has been uh, possible since, but I hope uh, it might be. In a talk to the Commonwealth Club after the Spring Hill meeting, I mentioned a few things Uh, that I thought the feds probably better not do. Uh, In particular, the development of standardized national competency tests. It only took a dozen years to decide that that was bad advice, and they went ahead and developed No Child Left Behind, which as far as I can tell, is a device for generating national accountability through an unfunded federal mandate. That's a pretty neat trick uh, if you can do it, uh, and I hope we can undo it. Well, uh, quick, quick summary statement. There are good schools at all levels out there and various approaches to curriculum design. Stanford has a terrific history in this area. There is lots of experience and lots of skills to, uh, to uh, draw on for, from uh, uh, a, a, an institution that's committed to innovation and as John Hennessy said this morning, committed this afternoon, committed to making uh, a, a, real, uh, a, a real entry into this uh, terribly important area. So I think that with uh, its national reputation uh, and its, uh, uh, its sense of innovation, uh, this place, uh, in its post-campaign effulgence could become uh, a real uh, idea center for a a national kind of improvement. Uh, We know that infectivity has always been low, but there's a real chance that the right idea, if compelling enough, could catch on. Uh, And all I can say is, uh, if not here, where? Thank you very much. You want me to do Q&A? Well, I'd love to have questions. I think there are are there microphones or something? Yeah. I keep hoping somebody will go to a microphone. I'm praying that this one fall. Oh, good. Well,
3: to, <laughs> <laughs> President Kennedy, what do you think of the idea of paying math
1: and science teachers more than their peers? <laughs> that's,
2: uh, the, the, that, that's an invitation to a, a quick punishment. Uh, look, I think that there ought to be uh, as, we, as we said at Spring Hill, uh, Low these many years ago, it's 20 years ago, uh, it, it would be wonderful if there were a national certification system and one that could recognize lead teachers or, or, or uh, especially, uh, especially highly qualified teachers. And I would not be against creating a salary differential for them and I would hope that there would be science teachers who would make that level uh, but, I, but I think to restrict it to one subset of disciplines would probably be a mistake.
3: Um, thank you, President Kennedy, for your talk. And I have a question about the intelligent design controversy. And as I understand, your argument that you made was an empirical argument. The learning ID will lower curiosity, deaden curiosity in your words. So suppose we test that experimentally, whether in fact Learning intelligent design lowers curiosity or makes someone less able to solve equations or work a microscope or whatever we can define as scientific reasoning or scientific thinking. And suppose the data show that learning ID actually doesn't deaden curiosity. As you yourself pointed out, even in Christian biology textbooks, much of the material they have is correct. Then would we withdraw our opposition to ID? And I don't think we would, and I don't think we should. So then are we making an honest argument when we say, as the argument you presented, I believe, is what most scientists say, that, oh, learning idea, learning creationism will have m- negative impacts. And it's not clear to me that that empirical argument is true. And I see it more as a principled argument. And if it is a principled argument, should, should we not be honest about it and stand up for what we believe science education is and what the role of professional scientists are in science education?
2: Well, I don't think... I don't think it's a, a principal argument. I, I think it's, ba- it's when I made those comments, I made them in the context of examining the textbooks that those students are offered and comparing them with what I think uh, 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 I- the better textbooks uh, that teach evolution and teach Earth history uh, based on based on data uh, offer. Uh, to be sure, it is possible that that. Christian schools that use those textbooks get very bright students whose curiosity is inspired somehow uh, by thinking about the problem in that way. And it, it could be possible that uh, a double-blind clinical trial of students who went and students who, who didn't uh, could show something. I cannot think of a, of a design for such a trial. And so I think, I think one needs to base uh, the question on careful examination of what the books say and what the students are taught. And, and I, I think that can be done objectively, but, uh, but anyone is free to disagree.
4: I'm just wondering what you think the role of uh, information technology tools will be uh, when it allows things like linkage of museums much tighter to schools, of... Of researchers and labs to to young learners, um, uh, are, have you explored some of the new possibilities that are available for uh, looking outside just the school into into the larger world of science?
2: Well, to a limited degree. I mean, to your to, to your point about information technology and access to simulation, for example, and so forth. I th- I think it has enormous potential, and I don't. I, and we're just in the log phase of, of development of all the possible applications of that technology, uh, I, we did it, 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 the the academy committee that I chaired did do quite a lot of looking into what we called the informal education sector, that is museum science centers and so forth. And we had a lot of people who very effectively represented those centers and talked to a lot of teachers who used them and made frequent visits with their classes to them and tried hard to evaluate what impact those visits had had. I, I, I was impressed that they that they did uh, positive things, but that how positive the things were depended a lot on the ingenuity of the teacher who brought them there.
1: Yes. yes could you expand a little bit on uh, your opposition to uh, uh, the uh, uh, national uh, uh, competency uh, uh, testing well when I
2: yeah when I when I called it a, 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 a an accountability standard with that that depended on an unfunded federal mandate that the states are being asked to invest quite heavily in in this in this process, and then to respond to uh, a national standard that they don't have a role, and that that, that neither states nor local school districts have, have a role in preparing. Uh, that strikes me as even fundamentally unfair. But I, I also think, I hear constantly from teachers who try to teach under these situations that uh, there is a, a strong temptation to teach, teach to the test, uh, I, I never liked that, and, uh, and I don't see why they should. Uh, so uh, I, certainly, I, I certainly, having heard the ar- some arguments on both sides, uh, convinced that uh, it, it's not the best way of doing that.
4: I have some uh, comments with regard to your, uh, your last statement about if not here, uh, where. Uh, and also, uh, with regard to the history of science education uh, in, the, in the post-Sputnik years. Uh, in those years, uh, as you pointed out, there were a number of, uh, of research scientists who had made their names and reputations in science, uh, not in science education, uh, who uh, designed top down uh, curricula uh, like, for example, Chem Study. The (coughs) result of that was, uh, at least in the case of general chemistry courses when I started teaching in 1970, uh, was (coughs) uh, every bit as dogmatic uh, and and theoretical uh, as any fundamentalist uh, could desire. Uh, The facts were missing. Uh, there was not uh, a groundedness, an anchoring of the theory in facts. This was recognized in the 70s and facts were moved in. Uh, but uh, still there's, as you point out, a neglect of the scientific process. And, uh, and so it's not at all clear to me that those whose first commitment uh, is to the research and whose experience is the teaching of Stanford quality students in Stanford courses, uh, has anything really at all to say about the experiences that high school teachers are having in a wide range uh, of of schools uh, with a wide range of students?
2: Well, uh, all I can say is that, first of all, I don't know anything about chem study, because I'm not familiar with it. Uh, I I know the products of the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study quite well, and I admire them and and have have spent a fair amount of time with them. Uh, In in 1952, uh, sorry, in 1957, uh, I uh, I taught eight grades. Uh, in uh, Hamilton West High School in Trenton New Jersey and I, and I taught uh, an approximately equal number and met with faculty at, at a high school in fish's Eddy New York don't don't go there. Uh, you know I, I'm not claiming that that a research scientist is the right person to tell uh, K12 what to do, but some of them have had a lot of experience as teachers. Uh, including as teachers of freshman students, as I have done for years. And I think, uh, I think it's fine uh, that they should be, and that some of us at Stanford could be and will be, uh, the developers of some refinements that can really help with this process. And the whole idea of this initiative is to get together with schools and with teachers. Not to shower down some top-down stuff to them, but to, but to work with them. And so when I say, if not, uh, if not here, where? Uh, it seems to me it's perfectly possible to do here. And I, I think my, my colleagues can do it. Thanks.
0: I think that's a wonderful point to end on. I know there are many of you who still have questions, but there will be time uh, during the reception that uh, President Kennedy will be here to perhaps answer them individually. But I do want to reiterate his point that that's what this K-12 initiative is about. It's recognition that neither scientists nor people who study education are going to be able to solve the challenges that Don has laid out for us alone, but together I think we might be able to do some things that w- neither of us would be able to do uh, independently. I do want to thank uh, President Kennedy for a, a, a wonderfully um, inspiring and uh, an important presentation, so, and also to, for those moments when he's not talking to audiences of hundreds. A small token of our appreciation, which is a School of Education shirt.
2: Thank you very much.
0: The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.